Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I, you can hear me. Uh, my name is Carsten Sorensen. I'm a reader or associate professor in Department of Management in the Information Systems and Innovation Group. Uh, I'm delighted to uh, invite you to an evening here in a discussion with Shane Wall, who is uh, the Chief Technology Officer and Global Director of HP Labs, uh, all at HP. Uh, few of you are as old as me, but the HP calculator. Eh? What an iconic innovation. Uh, you didn't do that, I think. It was I did not do that one. Oh, okay. Uh, Shane, uh, he, his career spans several leadership positions at multi-million dollar technology companies, including management, engineering, and marketing roles for Intel and HP. He's also an active angel investor, serving on several startup and technology boards, and he was a co-founder of a multimedia imaging startup, which was uh, later acquired by Mattel, Inc., in his current role, as you would expect uh, for a CTO or a company which bla uh, blazed a trail for Silicon Valley 79 years ago, Shane's focus is very much on transformation and innovation. And uh, we're going to talk, uh, he's going to talk and we're going to discuss with him some of the more uh, major trends or the major changes we are experiencing <laughs> these days. So this is part of uh, the uh, LSE SEMS uh, conference, uh, the annual conference for SEMS students. Have we got any SEMS students in the house? Hey, very good. You are not a very loud bunch. Um, so, uh, so LSE has a motto I've been told by my scriptwriter to say. I'm refusing to say it in Latin. That's just a little bit too pretentious. Uh, to know the causes of things. Uh, and, you know, if there ever was a time in history where this was important, it is bloody now. Yeah, we need to know the causes of things. We need to challenge people's opinions. We need to have good debate. Um, but uh, before we let Shane go on, I, I want to say a couple of words. And I would be a complete idiot if I didn't also promote our own degree. Are there any MISTI students in the house? <laughs> you see, that's how you do it, Sam. <laughs> uh, so we, uh, in information systems and innovation, uh, we have a. Um, Masters in innovation, digital innovation management, and it's an extremely competitive one where we have a lot of applicants for each person who we invite, and we have 120 students this year, and they're going to go out and kick some serious backsides very soon. Uh, this is the uh, one of the oldest uh, uh, sort of digital innovation masters in the world. It was started in 1978, and that was the ad break over for today. But you can uh, you can ask around at the reception who they are, so you can get some advice from them on what you might want, want to do. Uh, the format of today is uh, fluid. It's going to start with 30 minutes from Shane, plus or minus a bit. Uh, then uh, Shane and I are going to sit down there, and then we're going to have a mighty high-level talk of high intellectual value. It's <laughs> going to go on until not so long, because I want to involve you, uh, and Shane does too. So we will have a little bit of discussion to sort of settle down, and then, we'll, uh, then I will facilitate a discussion uh, with you in the room. And I hope you have some really good questions. We have a rule here that if you cannot tell the difference between uh, an essay on a soapbox and a question, then I have the right to verbally tackle you. <laughs> that's, uh, that's the rule we have. Uh, so it's not me, it's, I just work, it's the policy. So. <laughs> and we're all driven by policies these days. Um, uh, uh, and the other thing is, I don't know, uh, if, if, if the place goes on fire, um, just do whatever you need to do. That would be some <laughs> escape rooms. 
Uh, I refuse to do this as well. Uh, I'm not there with this or close. Uh, there is a Twitter tag, LSC Megatrends. It should be up there. It's up there. Please tweet, but please do it silently. So, uh, so turn your phone on silent, uh, please. Oh, there's such a long list of people. These people, they have so much time to make lists. That, uh, I think we're just about here. I just want to say one thing. You know, I have spent 25 years having this little hobby of trying to understand what what happens in companies when you digitize processes and all sorts. And people didn't used to really care. When you talk to, to people outside IT departments, they say, yeah, 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 but financing and OB and all of this is much more interesting. Guess what? Now they're interested. Why? Uh, because Amazon and others are coming up and nipping at the value chain. So the point is there, we're at a time, I think, in history where you can safely say, that the digitization is both creating these massive opportunities for doing new things uh, and also uh, challenging how we think about the future of work and many other things that we're going to talk about today. But also, it has become blatantly obvious, at least to me, in my discussions with our students and with companies, you cannot understand this if you don't try and theorize and conceptualize what technology is in this role. You cannot just assume it's some sort of function there. Ah, we don't need to worry about this. Just saying technology does not make you an expert on it. So you really need to understand the mechanisms that go on. And what I normally do is a very simple image. I compare it to the materials of our development. That we had stone, we had bronze, we had iron. Then we got plastic, which enabled us to do very cheap stuff that was really durable and hygienic. Guess what? The digital material we're using now makes plastic look like stone. It is so plastic that even top technologists and top industry watchers, they can't predict what's going to happen next. Simply because this material can, like water, creep in and out of everywhere and do new things. And I think that's why, with this in our, uh, in our mind, I think it's really important we then think about these big trends that this happens within. Because that's going to help inform us for what might happen next, even though prediction is a very dangerous job in the area of, di in the area of di digital technologies. Enough about my ego. We have a guest. <laughs> we should treat him nicely. Will you please welcome Shane Hall? Thank you. Well, let's swap over here for you. Hey, there we go. We already had it up. I didn't even need to do anything. So we'll get it back. Awesome. Good evening, London. And welcome to the future. And I say that because many of the folks here, you're going to determine what that future is. What you learn here, what you interact, what you take out is going to determine a lot about how we interpret and how we build upon how this world is going to evolve. And so what I want to do this evening is spend a little bit of time sharing with you how we look at that future. And hopefully do it in maybe a little unique way that you may not expect from, you know, a tech geek, uh, an industry guy, somebody who, uh, you know, is cranking out the products out there. But, but to give you a different perspective and to talk about why we look at it exactly that way. Now, predictions... There's a famous, actually famous American philosopher who said this, Yogi Berra. A few Americans out there know who Yogi Berra was, who said, predictions are tough. 
especially when they're about the future. And so what I want to do is I'm not going to pretend that I've got everything right or I'm going to say this is exactly how it unfolds or, or any degree of accuracy about it. But what I can say is we've done enough look, we've done enough assembly of different sources and a primary research to say that some of the things that we're looking at we know are things that we're going to face. And it'll be up to us about how we shape that future in a positive or a negative way. Now, why do we do it? Why do I do this at HP? And it really comes to this very simple sentence that many times in any corporate culture gets lost. And that is a vision. A vision of the company, right? Create technology. We always lead in a heavy way with technology. That makes life better for everyone everywhere. And it's easy to read that sentence and you just kind of move on and you go, okay, great, great, now tell me about it. But I really want to emphasize, and I always put them in bold, it's everyone everywhere. That's nearly 8 billion people on the planet today that are distributed across seven different continents with entirely different cultures. And so if you really take that as your mission, as your vision, you've got a big task. And I can look at you know, your, your statement over here, your vision over here. And at the very bottom of this, which I found totally impactful, and I was so excited when I saw it, where it says, and society. That is people. And so what we want to do is talk about people and how that unfolds and how we look at it. Because to understand people figures out how we should shape technology. The way we do it is, one, we drive towards a simple vision, and we call it blended reality. Don't confuse it with augmented reality or virtual reality or... I'm not making a technology statement at all. I'm making a statement about how we live, and that is a reality in which our digital being, who we are online, how we communicate, is becoming inextricably entwined with our physical reality. And that's happening in how we communicate, it's happening in the devices we use that we put on our body and the like. But the key is, how do you do that in a way that helps life, doesn't detract from it? So the way we approach it is, one, we certainly look at all the disruptive technologies out there, artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, all aspects of security, of 3D printing and the like. We certainly look at all of those, but that isn't what drives us. What drives us is this one little word about people, and that is megatrends. How the world will evolve. Socioeconomic, demographic, geopolitical evolutions that we, we see in front of us. And then ask ourselves, with those problems, what are the solutions and what do we see evolving and how do we guide it? Now, I'm going to give you a snapshot into it. I'm only going to give you in four simple things. There are actually about 60 different uh, subtrends in here. But I'm going to group them in terms of four, and I'm going to start with the first one. The first one is a fundamental change in how we live, which is mass urbanization. You know it. We live in one of the largest cities in the world. But that densification of where people are living is accelerating. By about the 2030 time frame, we'll have 8.6 billion people on the planet. And shortly after that, nearly 70% of those people will live in a city. And those cities are becoming much larger. In 1991, there were 10 megacities in the world. A megacity is defined as 10 million people or more. In our time horizon here, we're looking at 41 megacities in the world. Over half of them in Asia, split not too surprisingly between China and India but many of the names that you have never heard of. Many of them also emerging from Africa as Africa awakens and, and joins the rest of society here in terms of the advancement of technology. It is 
a completely different environment. It is one in which we are shaped by dense cities. We're shaped and challenged by uh, using the resources around us. How do, we, how do we get goods in? How do we get goods out? How do we manage waste? How do we manage energy? And how do we do it and be happy about it altogether? Now, we can go, this is going to be a reality, and then we have to figure out, do we deal with it in a positive way or we deal with it in a negative way? And I think there's a set of things we can do that can turn this into a positive experience and make a profound change upon the world we live in. Second big thing, changing demographics. And these are changing in profound ways. 97% of the world's growth over the next 30 years will occur in the emerging markets. Those are areas outside of Western Europe or the United States. You see a profound movement of business itself out of the mature markets into the developing markets where nearly half of the Fortune 500 companies in the near future will actually be based in emerging markets. And nearly 70 or over 70% of those companies in that, in that time frame will disappear from the S&P 500. But it's not only the companies and the change and the shift, but it is also the change in people. Right? We, we, we've taken the baby boomers who've made it through the snake of life and have come out on the back end, and they're the largest population we've had to deal with sitting on the back end who are living longer, have used technology for years, and expect it to solve their fundamental problems. And they have money. And so we call them the silver spenders. They're the folks that we can go target, that we can go look at how we can make use technology to make their life better. And on the other end of the spectrum, of which many people in here probably sit right on that edge, is what we call Gen Z. Affectionately, we call it Gen Generation, an entirely new generation, a generation that looks at the world in a completely different way, that's very much focused upon values and making a difference in the world, that's focused more on an experience, not so much about a possession, that'll freely move from one job to another in order to gain experiences as we go. It truly is a generation like we haven't seen since the 60s. And these two ends of the spectrum are going to challenge how the world evolves and how we develop technology to serve them. Third big area, hyperglobalization. Now we know this, right, because of thanks to the internet, everything being connected. It's why there's a, over 140,000 startups a year in emerging markets, thanks to the connections that we made that started with the internet and moved to mobile technology itself. But it isn't constrained just to that. It ends up being the fundamental fabric upon which we communicate. Now, there's a lot of little road bumps, a lot of little blocks. I think there was this little thing called Brexit that happened recently. And back in America, there seems to be a little movement to try and build a wall in order to separate. But don't be mistaken. Those are, not, those are mere road bumps on, on the way to the future. The overall interconnectedness that was created will not be reversed, it will continue to be an accelerant for what happens in the future going forward. And what I'm going to posit to you, and you'll see in a little bit, is it will not only be the ideas and the communication and the internet startups that will move in that hyper-globalized way at the speed of light, but it will be physical goods. The things that you touch and hold will be moving at the speed of light. And I'll tell you how I think that's going to happen. And then finally, we live in a world of accelerated innovation. And I really mean accelerated. It's not that, you know, it continues to get better and, and improve. It is growing at an exponential rate. 
If you just look at Moore's Law, which really was the foundation of much of the early tech start, it was you know, the idea that you got two extra performance at half the price, depending on how you interpreted it, and that happened every two years. Well, you keep doing that over and over. You do it at silicon, you do it at system, you do it at software, you do it at scale. And what you have is an exponential increase in what goes on from technology itself. That is why the power of your phone you know, ends up not being 10 times more powerful in the years ahead, but ends up being billions of times more powerful. And so when that technology, when those pieces come together, how can we use those to affect society? So what we did at HP Labs, and what we've done at HP, is we took all of those trends and then we study them deeply. We have a dedicated team uh, of sociologists, ethnographers, future thinkers, and they're dedicated at looking at how the world evolves and what are the problems we're going to face in here and how can we go solve them. Now I gave you a partial list of what we show up here. Each one of these are ones we've done dedicated deep research on, taking a look at how we think things are going to evolve. We clearly don't have enough time here tonight to hit all of them. So what I've done is picked a handful, a handful of ones that I think we're going to have to focus on that can fundamentally change, change that future to be a positive future and recognize the challenges that we all face. So we're going to hit and we're going to start right off with new business models because this is happening here today and now. Part of this is driven by mass urbanization, the densification of cities and a whole new generation coming in where just because of space constraints themselves, you don't so much buy something as much as you rent or you get it for a service. Now that happens in all manner of ways. It happens in, you know, thanks to uh, uh, things like Uber. You don't buy a car, you rent a car. It not only happens in that, but it happens in the physical products. We're now buying product as a service. You don't buy the product itself, you buy a service and it's upgraded on a regular basis. In fact, you can even do that with a car. Where the car itself you buy, you buy it as a lease, as a service, and it updates itself as it goes along. This is a fundamental value proposition of what Tesla essentially does. But what we're seeing is the uberization of everything. And a lot of this is a response to the densification of cities and to the constrained set of resources. And so when we change our business models, we change the products that we design, we change our whole go-to-market strategy in order to address a population that's demanding services in a different way. But it's not only the services. It's an entirely different way in which we need to make products. In a dense city, in a geography that's distributed, in technology that's moving at the speed of light, hyper-connected, I will posit that we're going to see one of the more, most massive changes over the next 30 years that we've ever seen. Now, we've had the Industrial Revolution, been going on for 130 years, and we all know that. I'll give you the simple version of it. That is, you know, if we want to build something, we figure out how we stage it all in one area. We design it one place, then we stage all the materials in, in one area. We pull all the materials in. We build it in either a low-cost or an automated way. And then after we build it, we load it onto boats. We take those boats. We distribute them across our oceans. We distribute them to where we consume them. We load them up in distribution centers and retail centers. That activity... That activity alone consumes nearly 5% of the world's oil supply. Just moving the crap that we purchase from one location 
to another location. And it doesn't matter whether you're doing Twinkies, Toyotas, or tablets. It's all followed the same basic model. And what I'm going to tell you is it's going to change radically over the next 30 years. And what we're going to move to is a world in which we design digitally, we design in a digital format that we describe in a descriptive way, that we transmit that design anywhere in the world where it will be consumed. And we do it through a digital supply chain, perhaps built on the background of blockchains and other secure methodologies. And then in the area where it will be consumed, it is printed or manufactured on demand. Think of how it addresses the fundamental challenges of how do I get material into a large city? How do I get waste out? I get rid of distribution centers. I get rid of warehouses. And I fundamentally change the nature of what is an import and an export. What's a tax when I'm sending it in a digital way? It will change policies. It will change intellectual property. It will change everything about what we do. And you see the footprints of this today as you already see 3D printing being used in manufacturing sense. We call that Industry 4.0. Now, it won't stop here because as we get more and more automated, more and more distributed, we're going to be faced with some interesting opportunities and challenges. One of them is intelligence on tap. We see it today. It's, you know, the Alexa, it's Siri. Google Home, where you can ask it any question, it gives you any answer. It gets embedded into every product. If you were at CES this year or you saw any of the reports from it, every imaginable device that you could see had some sort of interface built into it. And you talk to the device itself. Now, this is going to continue. The, the uh, AIs are going to get smarter. They're going to be able to be proactive about what we do. It is going to drive into all aspects of our business, and it is going to drive into our various corporations, not only in the products we do, but in all of our operations, in how we run HR, how we run finance, how we run a supply chain. And there'll be tremendous benefit from it. It certainly is going to lower our costs overall in many ways and, and increase profitability. But it's going to come with a whole set of challenges here as well, because we're going to see the rise of an automated workforce. Now, we can take this in a positive, or we can take it in a negative, but it will be up to us, me as a technologist, you as the future leaders of this world, about how we shape this direction. If you take the negative side, you know, in the U.S., almost 50% of U.S. jobs are viewed at potentially at risk because of uh, artificial intelligence. I don't think it's probably too dissimilar in Europe. One out of three white-collar jobs will be converted to software or a robot by 2025. And it, but it will lead to a tremendous growth in the economy. Depending on what report you looked at, it's somewhere between five and seven trillion dollars that will be added to the uh, economic output of the world. Now that can be used in a positive way. It can be used where we supplement individuals, where it's now we have to have workers that are trained in a different way. Or you might even find us where we have a world in which you work in a part-time capacity and you have much greater freedom and we start moving to things like a universal base income or ways in which we use the profits of the company that came from automation to actually better our individual lives. It will be up to us to determine how that unfolds based upon the policies, the positions, and how we manage it for society. 
Now, this is happening all over, as I mentioned, through all of the work for, workforce, workplace. What's interesting is, as I mentioned earlier on digital manufacturing, this end-to-end -end view that, that what we build will happen at the speed of light, it's happening in those products as well. I'll give you an example here at HP. We do a product we call the, the multi-jet fusion. Is this product here, it is quite large. It's actually aimed at manufacturing, and it's used to actually manufacture online. The interesting thing about it, just to give you an idea of how we do eat our own dog food, is that half of the plastic parts in that printer are printed by the printer itself. It manufactures itself. Now, we announced we'll enter, uh, we'll have digital metal this coming year. We'll actually do metal technologies as well. You add those in, and now all your metal parts have the chance to be printed. And we're taking machine learning algorithms, and we're integrating the machine learning algorithms into the system itself. And because it's all printed digitally, all of the parts are digitally. They're all done at a voxel level. That means you can imprint on them a digital watermark. And that means every part that comes out of the printer can be uniquely marked with a digital watermark. Essentially, every part has its own IP address. That means pieces of plastic, tables, chairs, can all be identified in a global internet. We hear about Internet of Things. This is the Internet of all things. Now imagine those parts, they end up in other printers that we build, and they all end up distributed around the world. And because of the machine learning we've integrated in, they all collect information about the performance of their own parts, what's working, what's failing. They share that with the other printers, and they use that in order to get a collective view of the performance of the machine. They can feed that back and have fundamental input to the design. And imagine when it changes the design and it turns back around, prints out the part itself, and says, please replace this part. It will fail next week. This is the world in front of us. It's going to have tremendous pro promise to solve some of the fundamental issues that we see. But it will be up to us on how we manage it, the policies that we establish, and how we veer it in a way that will help society. Next big one we see is a really fascinating one. It's been in the news lately, cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin. Who uh, is invested in Bitcoin? Oh, fantastic, fantastic. So those of you who have invested in, in Bitcoin, there's a term, especially if you've been in it for a while, if you really are serious about it, and, and, it, and it's called hodling. Does anybody know what hodling is? No, it's hang on for dear life. <laughs> Up and down, right? Now, most likely what we see is a trading frenzy is probably certainly a bubble in some fashion. But make no mistake about it. What's going on is a transformation that will probably have massive implications across the entire world. Now, here you're seeing it show up in the form of cryptocurrency, and, it, and it's actually getting at the heart of what do, we, what do we count as a trusted currency? What do we count as what the government does versus what happens in an open way? We'll see how that unfolds and what happens. I will tell you, I spent, um, we spent about two years deeply studying Africa and the emergence of Africa and some of the technologies and some of the things that go on in there. And one of the things you see is huge adoption of cryptocurrency in order to move money. Because a currency is all tied to commodities. It's tied to oil. It's, it fluctuates based upon other external factors. But if I can trade in a cryptocurrency that's targeted in my area, and by the way, Bitcoin is only one of 1,500 cryptocurrencies. If I can trade in a way 
that minimizes those fluctuations, I can change my fundamental economic performance. But the truly revolutionary part, and the part that I believe will have the lasting impact, is not the cryptocurrency, but it's the blockchain. And for those of you who don't know what a blockchain is, it's fundamentally the basis of what Bitcoin runs on. It's a simple way in which what we do is we describe that something happened. It could be anything. It could be, I sold a goat to Fred, Fred took the goat and milked the goat and gave it to Sally, and it goes on down the chain to the store. And all of that basically can get described in one little block. And that block says exactly what happened, and then you take that and you apply a very simple algorithm. I know I'm simplifying it, but it'll give you an idea. And you basically create a checksum out of it, which is a way to reduce all of that down to a number. And then I take that number and I combine it with another one, and it gets the beginning of a blockchain. Now, today we apply it in cryptocurrency, but we can apply it in everything. We can apply it in how we manage our goods. We can apply it in how we distribute our products. We can apply it to identity. Imagine a world today, who owns your identity? You don't. Google, Amazon, Apple, probably to some degree us, own your identity. And they know way more about you than you could ever imagine. But with blockchain, you have a really interesting possibility to flip that model, where the identity gets owned by you. And you get to make the decision of what information is sold, what's told about you, and you have the chance to make that trade. This is where a lot of the new emerging blockchains are actually targeting. I think this is revolutionary enough that when we look back on it in the next 10 or 20 years, this will far exceed what the internet was. It will be interesting to watch if that's true, but I believe it has the potential to, to be that radical. Okay, the other one is trust and security because it now raises a lot of questions of how do I trust this and how do I know what is secure and what is private? And plenty, plenty of uh, breaches over the last uh, year, two years. And I'm going to tell you that's the tip of the iceberg of what we're probably going to see. And massive breaches are inevitable, and it's going to be a question of how we deal with it. So what are we seeing today? Well, we certainly have seen all the endpoint pieces that have been breached. Is why we put so much focus at HP upon security as a construct in everything we do. It's not something that comes after. It's something that we design up front. But where you're seeing the threats are getting truly scary. Personal vulnerability. End of last year, there was a recall on a pacemaker because somebody figured out they could hack the firmware in a pacemaker. People had to come in and have their firmware updated. And people have figured out a way to actually take your DNA, which we do in DNA sequencers, and use the DNA in order to actually modify the output and create different sorts of interpretations of your DNA. And we're seeing this happen in all sorts of devices out here that have no security construct. And those, th those attacks are getting far more sophisticated. All of the AIs that we spoke about before, well, those are now getting used as attack vectors. Now imagine a world in which an AI is looking for the vulnerabilities based upon patterns that a human could not detect. This is a world that we're coming into. And so I challenge P3 
people here if you work in security. I challenge our overall society. I challenge the tech community. Addressing this in a fundamental way will seriously impact whether that future is positive or negative. I have a very simple belief, the way you address it, and that is the only way you address it is you've got to do it through cyber-resilient systems. Now, it's a fancy word, but what it really means is something just the way our bodies react. What do we do? We do everything we can not to get sick. You know, you take whatever potion your, your mom or your grandma told you. You know, you take your vitamins. You know, you try and sleep well. You try and eat well. You stay away from somebody who's sick, but ultimately you're going to get sick. And then when you do get sick, autoimmune kicks in. It has a self-healing network. Maybe you need some assistance for the outside, but the body is a tremendous way in which it can heal. And then it builds up antibodies based upon what it learned. We need to take the same basic notion of life and we need to extend it into our security domain, into a cyber resilient that protects, defends, and heals itself. We've got the basis of this in some of our early products, both in PCs and in printers. And this is where we think the evolution will come that can address it. I also think blockchain holds tremendous promise to address some of these fundamental issues. Finally, I want to take one last one that we look at, and then I'm going to really go out on the wacky edge, and I'm going to give you three ideas. But I want to leave you with a thought here about current megatrends. It's not the technology, it's not the trend that frequently is the most important. It is what is the next impact of that. And I use as an example here what we call the butterfly effect of self-driving cars. Now, we all know self-driving cars, and you know I'm, I'm based in Silicon Valley in Palo Alto, and believe me, you cannot swing a dead cat without hitting a self-driving Tesla. In fact, my boss, uh, Dion, uh, has a Tesla. He lives about 30 minutes from the plant, and every day when he, uh, when he comes into the office, it drives him into the office. He gets in the car, he starts it up, he pushes work, it backs out and it takes them all the way into work. And all he has to do is touch the wheel every three, four minutes just to let him know that he's present. <laughs> it's cool. And it's going to come. It will be in a broad-based way. But the real impact will not be the self-driving car. It will be what happens because of self-driving cars. All manner of society will be impacted. What, how do we design roads? Do we design roads now for self-driving cars? What about insurance? Who, what defines insurance and who should pay for insurance? Who's liable in the world of a self-driving car? What about all of our communities? Many of the communities, especially in the, the suburban areas, all sprouted out because of the car. But what happens when the car now is a conference room, an entertainment center? It will fundamentally change the nature of how you interact with what we call today a car. And I guarantee it, because I am from America, that what will happen is at some point somebody will ask the question, do you have a right to drive a car? Because when you're suddenly saving millions of lives because you have self-driving cars and you have the small population who just, like, frankly like me, who really likes to drive a car that sounds great, do I have a right to drive a car? It will be very interesting to see how that evolves over the next 30 years. All right, I got one last slide. 
and then we're going to you know go to go to questions here um, and that is this year we actually just published at, at the beginning of the year the next set of three you saw the partial list of all of them and we did some deep work on the next three and these are the three and so I'm just going to tease you with these ideas about what we think uh, is going to evolve to address some of these megatrend needs bioconvergence we already are in an era in which we have digital and physical convergence. We talked about that in the blended reality up front. Well, I think we're entering an era in which we have digital, physical, and bio converge. Imagine in the way that nature builds things, the way it constructs things, the way it builds a tree with leaves on it, the way it builds a plant or an animal, when some of the very same constructs can now be used in order to build physical things that we do. And it's upon us in many ways. So today, in 3D printing, if you print it digitally like we do, we actually print at a 20 micron voxel. That's 20 micron every point described in whatever 3D item that you're doing. So you can describe everything from color, translucency, stiffness, hardness, color, conductivity, all manner of things can be described. Well, in the near future, that's going to drop to where the size of that voxel is sub-5 microns. And when you can come to sub-5 microns, and I can change the additives that go in, or I can change all of the, the characteristics that go in, I can start actually printing or growing structures in a unique way on top of each other. So I can start actually mimicking the structure of leaves. Imagine a leaf that has a, a, a credible characteristic of being able to, one, regenerate itself, two, repel water when there's too much, and three, absorb sun and absorb nutrients. I can build in a world in the future things that are much closer to that structure. And things get really interesting then when you start getting into that space where you start then getting the convergence of how we build in nature and how we build artificially. Beyond human, we're at a stage today where we can sequence everybody's DNA, right? Probably a large chunk of you have done that. You know, 23andMe, Ancestry.com, get your DNA, figure out where you're from be able to react, if you would like, proactively to a disease state that you have. Well, imagine a world, we call it Theranostics. It's where I can diagnose you because I know your DNA, and I can diagnose you, not just a class of you. And I can treat you therapeutics. I can treat you uniquely because I know your DNA. Those are Theranostics. Now, much of that is, is enabled because we know your DNA, we can sequence it, and we can take technologies, in this case, like microfluidics, which is just the ability to take fluids, very, very small amounts of fluids, and to be able to control them in incredibly precise ways, very fast, so we can do it down at the cellular level. And we can use those capabilities to design drugs, to design treatments that uniquely treat your individual DNA. And then you start going beyond what we have the ability to treat today. And then finally, what we call frictionless business. Some of this is actually upon us today, but I think we're going to see the acceleration of it. When the AIs that we chatted about, when the blockchains that we mentioned, all come together to go uniquely solve pieces of the business model today. Like, imagine smart contracts in which today what we do if I need a contract with a supplier, I go figure out the supplier. I got to go negotiate with that supplier. I go back and forth on legal terms, and it goes forth, you know, for four, six months. I finally get an agreement in place, and I make purchases, and I got to do that across my entire 
value chain. Well, imagine a world in which the AI finds the required what you need, establishes the parameters that are acceptable to the business, and then negotiates real time between the entities to establish a contract at near speed of light. And then all of it is instantiated in a blockchain that describes exactly what happened, what the entities agreed to, what was delivered, and what will be delivered. And now what happens is business is now moving at a speed far faster than we're able to process. And it truly will be an interesting world when that comes in for both the good and the bad. So I'll pause here. I know I, we did it fast, and I know I only hit a small portion of it. But I hope we at least enticed you a little bit about what the world could be. And I'm really looking forward to input and questions. So, Carson, thank you. If you want, we can sit, or if you want, we can stand. I'm good standing. I kind of better to stand. <laughs> I, I just want to have a couple of uh, uh, a couple of uh, issues first. Uh, uh, first, I like the the bio one. It's uh, from CERN. They have a, a God particle. Yes. HP has a God machine. Yeah. Or it's on the way. It raises serious questions. Um, there's um, so many questions and no, so little time. But the first one, I think, is just a very practical one. Well, aren't there any practical hiccups in this? And I can think of two practical hiccups, uh, but there are many more. One possible hiccup is, uh, as Perra wrote in his uh, Normal Accidents book, if you take systems that are complex and nonlinear and you tighten them together in very, very tight relationships, then you create very unpredictable behavior and what he termed that normal accidents. Uh, and the other thing, if you just take the blockchain, like the, the, the internet works really well because it is truly decentralized. Uh, whenever you talk to any of the cyber currency freaks, then you say, okay, so what about scaling? They say, yeah, that's yeah. a practical problem. So I think it's, we are up to Belgium, that uh, Bitcoin uses the same energy every year as Belgium. So all of you uh, investing in Bitcoin, you are bad for the environment. <laughs> Shane, There's some truth to that. To you. Uh, I'm surprised you could only think of two. Yeah, but I have more on my list. So I'm just... Uh, two, then I'll leave them. I, I mean, I, I think there are hundreds, there are thousands of them. Um, and, and we spend a lot of time actually thinking through the various scenarios of what things could go good or bad. And, and some of them we will be able to control, some will be able to influence by, by policy and position, by how we take responsibility from a technology standpoint to impact them. But, but many of them are going to unfold in very unpredictable ways. But you think it's tenable for technology companies to remain being technology companies. You, you look at the, fa the Facebook and the Googles, they are now increasingly, by at least EU regulators, being forced to behave more like media companies, which means they have to be slightly more regulated and they have to behave reasonably. They can't just pretend that it's not, nothing to do with them, what happens on their platform. Do you think that is going to hit, you know, when you make your god machine that's going to print small chains walking around, you know? It's like the, the whole idea of ethics, the whole idea of regulation, regulatory oversight, the whole idea of the influence these companies will have, yours including, over uh, people's lives uh, and livelihoods. So do you think there is a, you cannot get out of any more just saying, well, I just made the calculator. It's up to you what you use it for. Yeah, I, I, I do think, and, and it's a lot of reason why I try and be very public about talking about these. I mean, we use these, these megatrends in order to define the investments that we make in HP Labs in order to shape the nature of our business of how it unfolds. And that's an immediate impact that, that it has you know, upon us. 
But one of the things I learned, I learned early on when we were doing this was that um, the importance of what these things are going to mean upon society overall and that uh, there are a set of issues I cannot solve or address on my own, but I do have a responsibility to talk about them, to address them, for us to have the debate about what we should do, what constitutes right or wrong. And uh, I'm an optimist by nature, and and I do think, um, you know, when we... The world is filled, especially in the technology domain, but and I've got a list of quotes that will just shock you in terms of the number of predictions that were made about terrible things that would occur or things that would never happen uh, from very big luminaries in, in society, and they inevitably end up wrong. Um, and so I am by, by nature an optimist, and I look at ways in which companies, we have a responsibility to do it in combination with governments and in combination with NGOs and, and other aspects of society. Um, but we have to wrestle with those questions, right? Is, uh, you know, it's a long time before they'll be able to print out you or me or you know, a physical being. I'm not sure that will happen, certainly not in my lifetime. But, um, but, but I do think we have to wrestle with the notion that if I can print a weapon, should I be able to print a weapon? Um, and we do, by the way, we do that today. Um, I'll give you a simple example, um, and this happens uh, quite frequently. So we, we sell a lot of printers. Many of you probably thank you, probably have a few of them. And they've gotten quite good. Color, quality, everything is fantastic. Well, what they were getting used for, and they've been used for a number of years, is actually counterfeiting money. Um, and actually, a, a big place that was happening is in North Korea. Uh, not just North Korea, but a lot of other you know, places who were in dire need of currency. Just print it. Yeah. Um, and so what we how, did... How, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Time out. How could they afford the ink... <laughs> how, how did they do that? Well, we, we have a low-cost ink subscription Sorry. model. Because <laughs> we move everything to a service. So, um, but what, what we do, what happened, what we did is we worked close hand-in-hand with government, and we actually implemented in the printers themselves detection of currency printing. And so now when you try and print on a printer, don't do it because we do know. <laughs> is, uh, if you attempt to uh, print currency, it actually will print a message. And then, you know, various printers have various messages in them, but it basically says, you know, you can't print. Fantastic. And I think things like that will, will probably emerge. Yes. So I'm just wondering whether they also, the 3D printers you're going to make, they will not allow you to make uh, spare parts for your own HP 3D printer. Uh, they probably will. Right, they probably, you know, they. Because this is the big issue. If you look in the in the automotive industry, uh, almost all the profit comes from after sales, and of course, uh, the margins are there on spare parts. So if we can print our own spare parts, there's a whole industry that is in dire trouble. Well, I I don't know if it's in dire trouble, but I I think it's a fantastic example of of where I think you're going to see the first set of impact in here. Right is that today, when you build a car, depending on what country you're in, you've got to keep spare parts around for that vehicle for 10 years, 20 years, you know, whatever the case may be, country may be. Um, well, those are, one, they're wasting a huge amount of resources. We talk about sustainability, look at that, okay? And then uh, it, they're not only a sustainable issue, but they're, they're, they're items on your balance sheet. They're, they're consuming things on your balance sheet. Now, imagine where you can go to, actually, they're just a digital file. Yeah. And when I got to fix my car, I just print it out. But whether it's you or the dealer does it, you still you know, probably have to have some professional installation, but, but you print the part out. Now I don't have inventory. My balance sheet got better. Um, I'm, I'm more sustainable. Those things are going to happen like 
two years, four years, uh, uh, as a high use of 3D printers for tooling, for grippers, all of that, that normally was a whole cut, it's like a whole industry, uh, very high margin. Yeah, Good. So I, I want to leave it up to, I want to have some of you ask questions instead. Yes, first off the bat, and then we have one all the way in the back. Secondly, have you got the second one? Run, Forrest, run, all the way up the back. <laughs> Great presentation, thank you very much. Um, two quick questions, they are related. Did you print your own hat? <laughs> and what the, 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 the megatrends that you mentioned, you, you did not talk, uh, talk about sustainability, you didn't talk about climate change, you didn't talk about the big gap between the rich and the poor. To what extent will that slow down the speed of light? Yeah, um, well, so first on the hat, I love hats. I have a lot of hats and I believe it was a huge mistake in the 60s when we moved away from them. So I'm going to single-handedly bring back the fashion of the hat. That's my goal. <laughs> and the real answer on the hat is, yes, I can print the hat, um, because it actually turns out um, the next wave of what's going on in fabric is to actually print. Now, you can print actual material and print on the material, but some of the more disruptive ones I've seen is where you actually print the thread. And then the thread is printed in a pattern that can actually create a hat. So. It's real. I'm not making it up. But, uh, but to your other points, um, uh, they're, they're hugely valid. And I, I only gave you a partial list. And, and there are ones that we, we struggle with on a regular basis. There are ones that we think about deeply internally. But many of them are not ones that we're ready to come out and make a, a definitive statement of what we think. Um, the, you know, I'll give you an example we didn't talk about here today, but it's one that I think deeply about, and that is I mentioned we spent a huge amount of time uh, on Africa, um, where you know for two years we studied deeply we secondary resources, primary resources. I spent over a month uh, on the ground in sub-Saharan Africa looking at how models uh, emerge, looking at, at, at various businesses. And um, there's a lot of really, there's some really heartening things about what happens in, in Africa. Um, a lot of things that will be really interesting to see how they evolve, technology developing in very unique ways, and there's a lot of things that are very sad, tough things that we're going to have to go deal with that I don't know how. And I'll give you two data points, and it'll make you think. By 2025, the, the continent of Africa population will have exceeded that of China or India. Okay, so it will become the largest landmass of area of, of concentration of people. And shortly after that, probably a little after the mid-century, probably 2050 to 2070 range, 40% of the world's working age population will live in Africa. Think about that for a second. 40% of the people between the ages of 18 and roughly 58 will live in Africa with unemployment at 50%. What happens in that scenario to society? And that's a problem that we all face. I don't know how to address it, right? I can think of little pieces that I can do, but it's going to take a massive thought about what we do and a responsibility for what, you know, how we address it. But by then, the working age in Europe would be 100. You got a microphone, speak. Yeah, I, th I think it's working, yeah. Thank you very much. Um, I have a very simple question. Out of all the things we're doing today, what will not change in the next 30 years? What will we keep doing? What, what do I hope? Uh, yeah. 
Well, well, I'll, I'll answer it by saying what I hope doesn't change. Um, and what I hope doesn't change is that we remain human, that we follow all of the principles that bring us here that we forget every day that focuses on the present, the here, the now, the person in front of us, the relationship, that we don't get too caught up in the technology or the device, that we're planning on the device. I mean, you know, uh, who was it? Was it Twain who said, you know, life is the thing that happens while you're busy planning it? That's what I hope doesn't change. Um, but, but we shall see as, you know, you walk down the street and you see everybody buried in their cell phone. And we might as well get the next ready. Who wants to be next? Yeah, we have we have one there that's being propped up by the person next. Here we go. It's a collectible suit. No. Ah, okay. That wasn't the one I meant, but it's okay. Life sucks. It's an interrupt. Yeah. <laughs> um, you say that you want us to remain human. But what's quite interesting is when you talk about genes and the rest of it, you know, I have this terrible, I have no sense of direction, I'm not numerate, and I love the idea of being going into a shop and buying that little gene to make me numerate, etc., etc. And yet what makes human beings is as much their faults and their lack of things as anything else. So the temptation to be superhuman, and it comes back also to the point that gentleman made about inequality, I mean, in Silicon Valley, you guys are going to be gods, and the rest of us are going to be sort of sub-gods. Well, I, I, hope, that, uh, I hope it doesn't happen. I mean, it, it, is a, it is a huge challenge that's upon us, and I, I think it will take a lot of regulation and policy pieces for us to seriously think about, because there's a boundary between some of these things, right, where um, maybe use as an example, we didn't talk about it here, but there's a technology called CRISPR, uh, C-R-S-P-R, and it's essentially... Um, technology that's emerged in, in, the, in the bioengineering community that allows you to ba basically edit your genome. Um, and, and what it gets used for is actually really quite interesting uh, and, and uh, heartwarming. It gets used to actually remove defects uh, in, in a preborn um, so, so that they don't suffer from some just horribly uh, debilitating or, or deforming illnesses. Um, by simply editing the DNA. Now, you can imagine things like that, where we can do things like that to make a really positive change and, you know, an impact in somebody's life. Um, but that same technology, if not controlled, if not regulated, can also be used to go edit and, you know, decide that, you know, I, I'm a beautiful bald guy. I love being, I, I love the way I am. But if I decided I didn't want to be, I wanted to be blonde. I wanted to have blue eyes. I wanted to be six foot five, that I could go do that. And CRISPR technology does hint at the ability to do it. And what we have to do, I think, through policy discussion, through regulation, is, pro is prohibit that from happening. And the question is, where's the boundary? Where's the boundary? It's a debate we have to have. Before we go to the next one, I, just, I, wanted to, I forgot to tell you that this will be recorded. The video camera there is a slight hint. Uh, so, so by, by being here, you accept this being recorded, and it might even be public if you can work out how to put it on the internet. I'm obliged to say that I forgot. We're in London. I thought you guys recorded everything. That's 
outside. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, next. Um, thanks a lot for the presentation. My question aims to draw from your experience as an executive, right, as a business executive. How do you ensure that the mega threads that you identify are forward-looking rather than backward-looking? Because if we agree on a list of items like four you know, trends, and then an event happens two months from now, then I'm sure that we can storytell and we can backwards rationalize about why that event f fit into that list that we created last year, right? So essentially my question is, number one, how do you measure the accuracy of that list that you create every year as a, as a technology leader in, in a massive company? And number two, in more tangible terms, how do you ensure that your R&D investments are ahead of the curve rather than trading the curve? Yeah, a very good question, and the simple answer is I can't. <coughs> I mean, I, I can't guarantee it. Um, what, what, and in fact, that's why I kind of opened with the, you know, the great Yogi Berra with the, the comment about uh, you know, predictions are tough, especially about, uh, when they're about the future is um, I, I, I think about that, we worry about it, we look at it in, in many different ways. Um, w w the exercise that we go through, though, is one that where we purposely try and, and put ourselves in a place where you can't extrapolate. You can't take what happened in the past and actually just say it would go forward. That's why I think if you're looking three years out or you're looking five years out, it's very easy. You just extrapolate, and we do that all the time. But if you try and put yourself in a 30-year out and look at it, you, we at least hope it shakes up the thought about it. That's what we, we try and do. Um, now, your second part um, is one we can do something about, and that is how do I take this information, which is fantastic, but like a, what I like to say is I don't want this to be a popcorn event. It's not a movie where you go get your popcorn and sit down and listen and be entertained. I, I do this because I, it needs to impact our business. Right? I mean, it, HP was the founder of Silicon Valley. 1939, it created what is the greatest technological area in the world. And what I worry about every night when I go to sleep is I have the responsibility to ensure that HP survives for the next 30 years. And, and after that, somebody else can take care of it. But I have that job of how does it survive for the next 30 years. And so what we do is we try and take these trends, we try and take what, what, what they are, and then we build them, and it takes a huge amount of work. We build them into the fabric of the company. I put it in my business planning cycle. We do a long-term planning cycle every year, okay? And we do that every year, and we build it into there. We take what are the technology pieces. I use that to guide what I do from an uh, R&D lab investment. I use it to guide what our marketing and sales principles are. I use it to change our channel. And, it, and we force that debate and discussion. I may still miss it, but... I'm damn well going to try hard in order to put those back into the, the very fabric of the company. I guess I should also comment, we do grade ourselves. We grade ourselves every year. Every year we come out and we look at the trend, because we don't think the trends, if they're megatrends, are truly going to change. Um, and we look and we go, is that trend still holding? Is it accelerating? Is it decelerating? What did we miss? And we do it, that's what we always start with every year. In fact, that's the exercise we're doing right now with the team is, okay, how did we do, where was it? And then we use that to refresh. And we come back and we go, okay, this went faster, that went slower. Um. <laughs> I am too. Thank you. 
Thank you very much for the presentation. Very, very interesting. Uh, what I found fascinating while listening to the presentation is that, to me, uh, what is emerging is a paradox. So in the past 50, 60 years, we thought that technology, the quantification, precise measurement of technology, could replace like old-fashioned disciplines such as ethics, moral philosophy, legal philosophy. And it seems to me <laughs> that there is no time where this old-fashioned disciplines are becoming key, like this time where technology is pervasive. So it seems to me that technology, rather than replacing these disciplines, uh, which have been the pillars for 2,000 years of, of human knowledge, are actually, finally, I would say, <laughs> encouraging a new study and a new interest in, in this discipline rather than substituting them. So I would like to know what you think about this fascinating paradox, I think. Well, I, I think it's a, it's a tremendous observation that you have. And as I think about it, there are probably plenty of examples where I think that's exactly what's happening. We're probably at a basis where it, where it can actually be a supplement or, or a positive impact as opposed to doing away with or replacing. Um, I hope, I hope that that's the case. Um, I think there's plenty to worry about on that, right? I mean, certainly in the, in the area of AI uh, and machine learning, there's a tremendous uh, threat to re replace what we're doing. Um, but we'll see. Uh, I, I, love your, I love your optimistic approach, and I'm, I'm there, there with you. <laughs> Thanks very much. This was a really good tour de force. Um, I guess just to temper some of the uh, optimism, I have a slightly pessimistic trend to put to you and, and see if you agree. It seems to me that a kind of a meta trend is all of these technologies are becoming really, really very intangible and very abstract. And when I think about all of these different um, revolutions that we've had, agricultural, industrial, personal computer, and now sort of blockchain and AI and, and whatnot, that ratio of people who can really understand and explain how these work on a practical level versus the number of people who stand to be affected by it is just vanishingly small. I mean, there's so many smart people in this room, but I, I think very few would be able to really explain how blockchain works. And I definitely count myself as someone who has to, you know, go yeah. away and reconsult Wikipedia each time. So do you think that's true? Do you think that's fine? Um, you know, what's your opinion on, on, on that meta trend? I think it's true. Um... And, and maybe a, a bigger threat or issue than we, we think, than we, than we think about, because um, you know you can take any individual technology, take a blockchain. There's a set of people who probably know well how blockchains work, and, and which, by the way, Karsten, there are actually some interesting um, advancements in blockchain. They're actually moving them into a more distributed fashion, so they're not done in a central way that are taking up a huge amount and you're burning a sun to get it. There's some fascinating stuff, but. Indivi individuals are probably a limited number of people who would understand a blockchain. And there's probably fewer who understand CRISPR or fewer who understand. So each of these individuals take huge amount of domain knowledge, PhDs, and in, in, in advanced research for years to truly understand. Um, but where I think it maybe even gets more scary is that what happens is you see them start being used in combination. And the combination of those, I'm not sure anybody will really fully understand. Now, the positives of some of those could be, you know, AIs, as AIs get more advanced, their ability to control or their ability to combine things in unique ways and understand the interaction could present an opportunity. But it also could present a threat. 
you know, and, and look, I'm not, uh, I'm an optimist by nature, right, and, and I, I don't want to, you know, say that it's, we're heading into a terrible world, but we have to be conscious of the, whatever you want to call it, Terminator, or whatever your favorite dark movie is, um, you know, if we're, we're not careful, those combination of things certainly could lead to limited knowledge in humans far greater in the machines themselves, and then it's how do you control the machines. So uh, a not unrelated question, looking at AI, blockchain and related tech, as it moves into business, the workforce, society, governance, where do you see it being the most kind of transformative in terms of just how society runs is, how people's daily lives are? Um, well, I'll take transformative, I'm not going to say it's necessarily positive, okay? But, but um, at least in terms of, if I look at AIs, and that's happening today, is the transformation in just basic functions that we do today, right, in the business. I'm taking your, your, your question within the context of the enterprise itself, is that the use of AIs, for example, in, in our financial systems to understand deeply the interactions of the finances and what was cause and effect is making a massive impact. In HR, you know, we deploy them for how we, how we actually manage uh, overall policies with HR. Now, that diminishes employment in some ways, but it also delivers better services back to, back to folks. And then, like if I took blockchains as an example, um, we're starting to see blockchains, you know, starting to be explored in, in the, the supply chain itself. And in, we're experimenting. We have a gentleman down here, Simon, who runs our Bristol lab. Simon, raise your hand. He runs our HP lab here in Bristol that focuses on security and, and one of our experts in blockchain, where they're doing work uh, about how, how it transforms, how it could transform our supply chain itself. And we talked about 3D parts, how it could actually use it to manage distribution of those parts. Um, so uh, they're not exciting areas, but they're big transform, transformational ones. Um, over here, yeah. Um, you, you kind of skipped over without um, referring to the slide that talked about half work, just about half of workers becoming redundant, basically, 47%, I think. Um, you did mention the basic income, um, and, and, and Africa should be the absolute priority for basic income. That's where it should be the first place for basic income. Um, but do you think the 0.01% uh, is ready to fund this? Should they be ready to fund this? And also a firm like yours has taken such a forward role in the, in the technological development that has the outcome of the, the half, a, half the workforce becoming redundancy. Don't, don't you have a responsibility to, to push for or encourage or ensure some redistribution like that? Yeah, so, so first of all, thank you. I mean, seriously, was, um, what I want to do is start the debate. That's why I, I bring these, the issues up, the questions up, is that it should start forcing the debate about how do we deal with that world in which you lose 50% of your employment. And, and you know, are the 0.001% or whatever, whether it's companies or it's individuals going to contribute to it? And I think the answer is voluntarily no. And so then it comes to society, it comes to government, it comes to, you know, establishing policies that, that start consciously thinking about this and start thinking about the structure you'd put in place to address it, to have the debate about 
you know, a universal base income. Um, you know, I know there's experiments that have gone around in various parts of, of society around doing it. And I, I'll be honest, the first time I heard the concept and the first time we were thinking about it when we were exploring loss of jobs, I just went, well, that's, that's really crazy. And then... What you uh, yes, could be, but I, I don't even think it's com communism is a wrong way to think about it because it, it's, um, it, 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 it's, a di it's a different approach that, that focuses more on you created the profits for the company and you still want to maintain those profits. You're not trying to destroy profits or make somebody you know, all equal or you know, the same. It's, it's a matter of by the creation of those profits do you enable new, you know, new models in doing it. Now, I'll use an example, and it's, it's, out, it's um, related but a little different, and it certainly uh, touches off a, a, a debate, but that's what I try to do. Is, um, you know, we went through in the U.S. massive debate on tax reform, and we actually passed uh, a huge tax reform that went to corporations and to individuals. And uh, one of the things that was really interesting about it uh, that nobody predicted Certainly Trump never predicted it, and, and none of the, the, you know, the naysayers did either, was um, that with the benefit, the corporations actually turned around and took the money and put it back in the individual's hands. There were over 200 companies voluntarily put bonuses back in their own employees. Now, that was voluntary. They were doing it. They did it on self-sharing what their profits were. Now, I'm not saying that's what's going to happen going forward. I think it's going to take government and, and, and policy in order to change some of those. But those, I think, are the, the debates that we have to have. You know, we have to have those discussions. Up around the back, and then we have at least two wrestling here. Yeah, thank you. So imagine that I was Santa Claus and that I had a big bag. with. got to see where I can. Oh, there we go. Thank Santa, you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I won't sing Jingle Bells, but no, imagine you, I gave you $100 billion dollars and you could invest them into three areas of research or three companies um, to maximize the good for humanity. Which fields would you pick, and how would you invest your $100 billion across three wow, fields? Wow, that's, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, especially the, your last piece of invested for the good of humanity. Um, um, that it's probably, that's a really good question. Um, uh, I, I really do think the transformation in, in, the, in the digital manufacturing space has a chance to radically change a lot of what we do and, and have a massive impact on sustainability of the planet. Um, and Lord knows we need a change because if you look on the 30-year period and we continue with the same advancement and consumption of resources with, with projected population growth, we will you know, exceed, we'll take two Earths to continue propagating what we're doing. Um, so I do think it has a promise to fundamentally transform, uh, you know, the world. Um, you know, I'd like to say blockchains. Um, that's a little harder to get your hands around. Um, but it, it, I do think it's radical enough that some of the changes will be, be interesting, interesting to see. Hello. Thank you very much. So my question is about artificial intelligence. We as humans believe we should be granted certain rights just on the grounds that um, we are conscious beings with a sense of identity and self-mastery. When it comes to the point when artificial intelligence products also fulfill this criteria, how do we measure the rights of artificial intelligence? 
and how do we, to what extent will we have the power to shape the way they interact with our communities? Uh, you, beautiful question. Fantastic question. And I, I do think, uh, I don't know if it will be in my lifetime, but I'll bet in your lifetime you've got to answer that question, right? I mean, in the early days of tech, still, we still have it, right? We had the Turing test. And the Turing test was, you know, when I quiz in a certain way, can I tell if it was a machine or it's a human? And, and we called that point when, it, when, we, when AI got to that point, you know, we reached the singularity and, and then, you know, the intelligence of the machine would exceed that of the human. Current estimates depend on who you, you talk to, but the current estimates say that that's probably around 2029. Not very far. But the question you ask is far, far bigger, tougher, is um, can we create <coughs> consciousness? Do you create consciousness? And it comes at the root of what defines consciousness. I, won't, I don't, couldn't even attempt uh, to do it. It's a profound question. I mean, it's the root of philosophical debate among humans of, of any living item is what defines consciousness? Um, I don't know. And how do you know we are not already living inside an AI? That's, the one the that's another. <laughs> that's what the geeks think about when no girl wants to go out with them. Yeah? Uh, <laughs> Uh, so my question is kind of more related to uh, when you were talking about self-driving cars and you were talking about who takes liability if there's an accident. So I was kind of thinking on the legal grounds, maybe not as far as she was going with human rights, but as technology is progressing, we're seeing uh, like uh, competition law struggling to keep up with uh, Google and Amazon. We see... Uh, human rights law struggling to keep up with gene editing and experimentation. Like in Europe, we have law that you can't uh, do baseline gene editing on fetuses. Yes. So I was wondering how you feel the law globally is going to keep up with this technological advancement. And if you feel it will struggle, do you feel like AI could possibly help and aid in maximizing the, the rate at which we can adapt to this and helping... Uh, government level and possibly adapting? I think, I think the legal system is going to struggle massively to keep up. Uh, um, and just almost by definition, legal is based upon you know, uh, precedences in the past. And what we're going to see are things that like, you've never seen before. And so I, I do think you're going to see a massive struggle with, with how that happens. I think you're going to see areas where they'll be proactive, but they're going to be dispersed and, you know, kind of uh, higgly-piggly, up and down, random. Uh, I do think, you know, AI as an interpretation of law will happen, um, and I do think that those can be things that can help. I don't know if there's a solution to it, but uh, it's, a, it's a good question. And I hope by now the nature of this is a lot of what we do is we get a conversation going and we start thinking about it deeply and we influence, right? I don't pretend to know the answers on all of these. I, I, I know a limited area that I focus on. Um, but, but what I hope to do is plant a thought. Plant a thought with somebody who, who can impact that in a different way, who can take it and, and then advance that cause. You can, act, you can actually say that the most important, uh, the most important conversation we might have is between humans and AI in our own mind trying to work out what, are, what is really being human when we look at that other thing in the light. And That's right. Harari's argument is that our big, our big waste in our history as humans is we only have one kind of human. 
that initially there were more kinds of humans, so we, had, we would have had some other ones to look at, whereas now we killed all the other ones, so there's only <laughs> us left. So if we then produce something that's hu superhuman, how would we feel like being looked at at some dumb thing that is a Neanderthal or less? Yeah. And I think that'll teach us a lot about being uh, humble, maybe. Is that evolution? Yeah. That's uh, evolution. Uh, that's, yeah. What are your thoughts about space travel? Lost uh, where, where the, I lost where the microphone is, actually. Oh, right there. What's my thoughts about space travel? I would like to go. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I, I haven't studied it in any deep, serious way, to be honest. Um, I, I will say, you know, some of the 3D print technology that we do, we do a lot, we do work with, with NASA. Um, and there is exploration about, you know, how, how you can use some of these. Um, we actually use, we have uh, printers that we actually deploy on the International Space Station um, that, uh, you know, were then designed for, for zero gravity. Um, I, I haven't thought about it probably deeply. I love science fiction. I love reading. I always have a great advertisement for one of my favorite series called We Are Legion, We Are Bob. If you've never read it, it's a trilogy, fantastic read that de deals with artificial intelligence, space travel, and how current technologies we have could be used in a, in a unique way. That's my free advertisement, but that's only for entertainment. <laughs> yeah, we have time for maybe a couple more questions. Uh, hi, yeah, sorry. My question would be, um, if you look at moving forward into the age of automation, obviously it's going to be both a threat and a big opportunity. What do you see as like HP's biggest point to grow on moving forward into there? Like what would you say currently is your biggest weakness or vulnerability like moving into that period of big change? Wow, that's a good question. Um, um, I, uh, I, maybe the way I would answer it is what I, what I worry about in this future and whether we're set up for it is... Um, is to, to go after, I think, some of these problems and, and actually tackle some of them requires some really deep domain knowledge in particular areas. Um, and and I, I really worry about whether we have enough of that domain knowledge to accelerate a direction where we need to go. Um, and and if, you, if you've ever been to Silicon Valley or you've lived in it, uh, and I've definitely been there for a long time, is you figure out when these, um, you know, really transforming technologies come out is the, the, the race for that competency just gets crazy. I mean, like, totally out of control. And one of the areas where that's happening today is in AI and machine learning, um, where the, the demand for that, that capability and competency in the valley is just outstrip anything that's available. So you, this is where you get crazy things where you know, a, a, a master's or a PhD comes out with, you know, focus on neural nets or deep learning, and uh, right out of school with no experience, you know, a bidding war goes on, and the person ends up starting at a million dollars a year. Um, it, it's great if you got that skill and you can market it, right? But if you're an employer in there and you're, we're all, uh, you know, fighting for those resources, it's tough in the valley then. And, and as a result, you know, we'll always be anchored in Silicon Valley. We started it 
and will always you know, have a base there, but a lot of the competencies and capabilities I, I try and build are outside of the valley. Right, we, we do a lot in Israel, we do a lot in the UK, we do it in South America, we do it in Asia, because uh, I have access to resources better. We have one very appropriately, Shane, in honor of you. The last question is by another gentleman with a hat. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> I love that hat. <laughs> From hat to hat. Right. <laughs> Hello, can you hear me? Yeah. Um, okay, my question sort of um, uh, touches a bit on the last question. Um, it's about artificial intelligence. I've been, I used to run a computer software company myself and I've been recently to quite a few lectures where the subject of artificial intelligence has come up. It seems to me that, that the, um, the questions about consciousness and so on are so far away from anything that we can even think about at the moment that I don't think it's realistic to, to consider it. It's, it, it it's, there's no um, it doesn't have a pathway that we can actually project. It's just uh, a possibility. Having said that, I certainly w uh, wouldn't rule it out uh, in the future. My question is that the sort of AI that we can currently build and that we can certainly see our way to extending, um, you mentioned neural networks and so forth, um, the essence of a lot of that is that when it's done its learning and it's come up with its sort of system and says, okay, I'm here now ready to answer your questions. We don't know how it does it because we didn't program it. We didn't, like the software in my company, I had somebody write it to a specification. We knew what it did and why it did it. The machine learning, we don't know. Now, right. we know that already machines are, uh, machine learning is, going, is probably being used and certainly going to be used for things like, is this person worthy of getting a loan? Um, should you be admitted to LSE to study our one of our courses <laughs> at the moment. Yeah. But these, this is where machine learning is going to come. How do you think we need to develop in order to tackle the, the problem that raises of the fact that we are giving to a machine whose inner workings we don't actually understand and can't specify the, the, the right to tell us that we should not lend money to this person but he's okay. Yeah, it, it, it's, um, you're right, it, it is if you spend any time in machine learning, especially like deep learning neural nets and the like, is um, they're all, by definition, by design, established for them to learn. And as a result, we don't really know how they got there. Um, and and uh, it, like I say, it's almost by programmatic design. Maybe that has a threat um, on it. It, it, it probably does. But it also is what allows the unique solutions to things in totally different ways. Now, where I thought you were going, and the, and the way I would actually answer it, because I think it's the biggest shortcoming we have in AI today, is I agree with this a long time before we have you know, a, a question about consciousness. But what I think is absolutely missing in AI research today is empathy. Is, is how do you create an AI that has empathy? True empathy. And, and I think when you do that, then you start getting at the question of, do I hire that person or that person? Do I trust that person or that person? And, and that, to me, is a, an area of research I would love to see you know, universities focus on. Um, it's a, otherwise, we are going to end up in the most sterile, unwelcoming environment that you could imagine.
a very fitting end. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, the sterile and... <laughs> no, we don't want to end there. Okay. Um, so Shane is going to be available for a short period of time. There's going to be drinks of alcoholic and non-alcoholic kinds outside uh, at the reception. Uh, I think before we finish, could we all give Shane a really warm... Uh, thank you. Thank you.